0: John chapter 1, the longest chapter in the Bible apparently, with verse 18, John the gospel writer has concluded his introduction to who Jesus is, the eternal word, the true light, the God who became human and gave grace and truth to all who received him. John told us, he says, I, I, we saw him. It was glorious. So who is this we John speaks of? Well, it's the others who believed. The witnesses that he's going to call on to give their personal testimony. And John already introduced us to the first person he's going to call to the witness stand. John the Baptist. A messenger that God sent to give evidence firsthand that Jesus is indeed God, the Messiah, and the one who gives us life. John said, these things have I written to you that you might believe that he's God, the son of God, that he's the Messiah, the Christ, and that through believing in him, you might have life through his name. So John says in verse 19, and this is the record of John. Having completed his prologue, we now begin the main section of John's gospel, where he's going to call to the witness stand three different things. Number one, various people to give their personal testimonies. Number two, he's going to show us eight miracles Jesus did that only God can do. And then number three, he's going to show us eight things Jesus claimed about himself that only God can legitimately claim. And so the first one he calls is John the Baptist. This is the record, the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, saying, Who are you? And he, John the Baptist, confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So Jerusalem sends this delegation here to investigate John. This was likely sent from the great Sanhedrin. And they send, it says, the priests and the Levites in this group, of this delegation. The priests and the Levites, remember, were the two family groups that served in the temple worship. The priests were the descendants of Aaron, and they did the offerings and went and put the incense in the, in the holy place. And of course, in the Day of Atonement, went into the Holy of Holies. The Levites were a tribe that Aaron was a part of, his descendants were a part of, but not of his family. So this is all the other Levites, and they assisted in that service. Now, the great Sanhedrin, that was like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. Seventy-one men in this group, they were overseen by a president, usually the high priest, and it consisted of religious leaders, priests, rabbis, and they oversaw the prosecution of crimes and other legal or religious matters in the nation. Jewish tradition held that this institution was inaugurated in Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. Remember Moses' father-in-law had told him, what you're doing is not well, Moses. You're seeing every case. You're the judge in every case. This is not efficient. People are frustrated. He said, pick 70 people and have them help you. And so he did. 70 godly men he picked them to help them out and they say that's when the Sanhedrin great Sanhedrin was formed. I don't know if that's true, but that's what they what was in existence at this time. And the Roman governor over Israel at that point in time, they allowed this court considerable autonomy and authority. But they did not have the power to execute people, to condemn them to execute the death penalty. Now, they come to ask this of John, who are you? Because John was baptizing Israelites. Verse 28, these things were done in Beth Bar- beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. Baptizing Israelites was a big deal because while every Israeli performed ritual cleansings, they never got baptized. That ritual was for Gentile proselytes who were saying goodbye to their old life of paganism to follow the Lord. You see, by calling Israelites to get baptized, John the Baptist was saying that the Jews needed to repent and be saved just like the Gentile needed to. And that didn't sit well with the religious leaders. Why would God's people need to repent and be saved? They're already God's people. They're not the heathen. Why would they need to be baptized? Well... Because there was such a big turnout to get baptized, to listen to John's preaching, Luke 3.15 tells us that people were starting to wonder if John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so this delegation, they want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Did John think that's who he was? And it tells us in verse 20, John confessed, did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ this is very thorough. John was very thorough in his response. He didn't want it to be misunderstood in any way. In fact, the I in this this sentence is so emphatic every time he says it that John is basically saying, I've indeed been preaching that the Messiah is already here, but I've always said it's not me. The way John the Baptist says this means that he consistently preached this truth. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. The, The concept is I've always said this, this has always been my answer, even when people suggested I was the Messiah, I always said what John already told us in verse eight, "I'm not that light, but I was sent to bear witness of that light." So with John denying being the Messiah, they asked him a follow-up question. They asked, "Well, what then? Are you Elijah?" And he said, "I'm not. Are you that prophet?" And he answered, "No." I love the kind of way John talks, you know. Who are you? I'm not the Messiah. Well, are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. The reason they ask this is they're, they're saying if you're not the Messiah, then you're, are you one of the other important people the Lord said would come during the time of the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Now they got that from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Verses 5 and 6, the last six, the last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 and 6 is a promise that God gives to his people. Malachi 4, verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. He's going to come. He's going to turn the hearts of the people back to the Lord, lest God judge them as well when he comes to judge the earth. So, are you Elijah? Are you that guy? I'm not. Are you that prophet. Now that's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 through about verse 21. If you read it there, you'll see that Moses in his farewell address, so to speak, Deuteronomy is his farewell address to the nation of Israel before he's going to die and they go into the promised land. Remember, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land, that Joshua would lead them into the promised land. And so Moses gives this last exhortation to say, guys, get it right. Do it the right way. Follow the Lord. Do it his way. Everything will be fine. And he says to them, in the middle of that farewell address, he says, guys, I'm going to die, but God's going to raise up a prophet who's like me, and he's the one you need to listen to. Whoever doesn't listen to him, it's not going to go well. So make sure you listen to him when that prophet comes. Now, they said, are you him? And John answered, no. This reveals to us a few things about the members of this delegation. Number one, they believed in a coming Messiah. They did believe the Messiah was coming. Number two, they were familiar with the scriptures about the days of the Messiah. But number three, it also shows us that they didn't understand the scriptures about the Messiah. You see, the Messiah and the prophet are the same person. They're not different people. But there were superstitious views that prevailed back then about the Messiah. And one of those superstitious views was that the prophets of the Old Testament, that they would come back from the dead to preach when the Messiah came. In Luke chapter 9, verses 18 and 19, when Jesus took the the lads to Caesarea Philippi to get away with them, and he said to them, he goes, "Who, "'Who do men say that I am? What are you hearing?' And in Luke 9, verse 19, they answering said, well, John the Baptist, that's what some people are saying. But some also say, Elijah, and others say, you're one of the old prophets has risen again. So this was the superstitious belief, was that this is what would occur before the Messiah came. Dead prophets would be coming out of the graves and they'd be preaching. Elijah would be coming, all these things. So there was a lot of superstitious ideas about what was going to happen. When I think about that, I I think about how it seems to be easier for mankind to adopt superstition than to just go with what God's Word says. It always seems easier to do that. Frequently, I find people who reject the gospel believe in something superstitious, They'll profess intellectualism, I don't believe in a fairy tale God, whatever, and then the next moment you're like, honey, is my, my shirt clean for the game? Like, you really think like wearing a certain shirt affects how the bucks play? I find that people who reject the gospel because they say, well, it's a non-reasonable idea, no evidence. They frequently, frequently believe in something superstitious, something based on zero evidence. If you don't believe the gospel this morning, then have you ever asked yourself about the superstitious things you do believe in? I remember watching a, a documentary in, on evolution and Richard Dawkins, was a leading person in the atheist field of arguing for atheism and arguing for evolutionary theory. They questioned him at the end. They said, well, where do you think life all came from? And this guy who purports to be wholly intellectual said, crystals. Crystals. i remember I had to kind of rewind and go back and like, did he really say crystals? Yeah, crystals and aliens is what he said. Zero evidence. But he believed it. Have you ever asked yourself why? You don't walk that certain way or don't do this certain thing, but you find it hard to believe that God created you. I don't bring this up to start an argument. I'm just pointing out that there are questions we don't ask ourselves enough. We don't confront ourselves and ask the question, why? Why is it so easy to believe in silly things, but so easy to find the gospel to be silly? Well, that was the prevailing concept back then as it regarded the Messiah. God had made promises, He had given teachings but there were superstitious things that people believed in. And so Jewish religious thought in Jesus' day barely resembled the Scripture. Most only knew rabbinical ideology. And so that resulted in a lot of wrong ideas, unbiblical ideas about the Messiah. And so when they asked their line of questions, and John the Baptist doesn't fit into any of their ideas of how they conceived the Messiah and his prep team, they demand an answer so they don't return to the great Sanhedrin empty-handed. Verse 22, Then said they to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What do you say about yourself? John said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Literally, he says, I am the voice, not of one crying in the wilderness, but the one crying in the wilderness. I'm the one that Isaiah spoke about, the one that said, make straight the way of the Lord. When Eastern monarchs would approach a region, heralds were sent out before them to the people of that region to improve the old roads or to make new roads, so that when he would come in, he would be honored. When he would come in, it would be an easy journey. Straighten out the crooked places, level out the rough patches, Now, if the region didn't like that monarch, they might ignore the herald's call, or they might throw rocks on the road to make the journey more difficult. But the herald's job was clear. Get the people ready, because the king is coming. Prepare the people so that the road isn't a wasteland when the king arrives. Now, John, of course, here is quoting from our scripture reading, Isaiah chapter 40. But it's not a direct quote. He's just referencing it. And so in referencing it, we need to to understand better what he's referring to we need to look at the context around what he's referencing so let's turn to isaiah chapter 40 and let's look at these first 9 verses the message from the lord to isaiah during a time where isaiah has been preaching judgment judgments coming you're going to get defeated by the babylonians you're going to get taken captive But from chapter 40 on to the rest of the book, the rest of the messages are hopeful about the restoration. And a lot of them are messianic. And in chapter 40, this is where the turn comes. And so the Lord begins speaking a different message to his people through Isaiah. He tells them, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak you comforting words to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is done. Her iniquity is pardoned for she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. For all that God's done to judge them, the Lord's going to give them double blessing now. And so verse 3, the Lord speaking to Isaiah refers to this voice. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The king of kings is coming. Prep the way. Yes, it's been bad. Yes, you're going to be taken captive. Yes, the roads will be misused and disabused and unused. But the king's coming, so make straight the path. Why? Verse 4, because when he comes, he will straighten everything out. Every valley shall be exalted, lifted up. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. And the crooked shall be made straight. And the rough places will be made plain or smooth. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God Himself will come. The King Himself will come. You'll see His glory. And He's going to level everything and make it the way it's supposed to be. So prepare your heart. Prepare for his arrival. Get ready. The voice is going to come and is going to say that, crying in a desert land. Well, what's he going to cry? What's his message And telling him? How are they going to get prepared? He's going to point out something important. Verse 5, all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And the voice said, cry. And he said, well, what shall I cry? And here's what it is. This is the message, Isaiah, that the voice is going to preach all flesh is grass. All the loveliness thereof is like the flower of the field. I love it when you see flowers in bloom, but grass doesn't last. It dies. It gets replaced. It's not hardy in that sense. Flower, it's beautiful there, but it doesn't last long. Eventually, it dies. It withers. The idea here is that, verse 7, the grass withers and the flower fades. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord blows upon it. God is coming. His glory is going to be revealed. He's going to level everything. So no matter the the beautiful things we make, the things that we do with our lives that that are not of Him and not worthy of Him, it's all going to be leveled. Surely the people is grass. He's explaining. The problem is is that we're, we're grass. When we think of grass, it doesn't last. We think of a flower, it doesn't last. Well, the truth is, none of us are going to live this way forever. I love the, the stat. 10 out of 10 people die. It's the truth. If the Lord tarries, every single person in this room is going to face death at one point. So the voice is crying, why are you living like you're never going to die? Why are you living like it just goes on forever and everything's fine? The grass withers, the flower fades, but it's the word of our God that will stand forever, not us. God's made promises, both in justice and in mercy, and he will fulfill them. So verse 9, O Zion Receive this message, turn to Lord, prepare you the way of the Lord. Straighten out that wilderness of your heart, the desert of your heart, and then as you receive that, you can share the good news. O Zion that brings good tidings, get you up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem that brings good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid, and say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. When you say behold, you usually want to show someone something. The concept here is Messiah is coming, your God is coming. The Messiah is God. His glory shall be revealed. John says, I am that voice, and the herald for the king as predicted by Isaiah. I'm the one who's going to cry out during a wasteland time for God's people to prepare themselves for their king. John's goal, the voice's goal, is to get God's people to respond to the Messiah's soon coming by receiving His words with joy. And the result will be that as they receive those words with joy, they'll be ready for their King, and they'll be able to spread the word that their God has come to earth to lead them out of the wasteland and into a new day. That's the whole point. Now, John's role as this voice of Isaiah 40, it's referenced in all four Gospels, which means it's important. John was God's advanced notification that He, He Himself, the King of Kings, was coming. So many Old Testament Scriptures provide a clear teaching that the Messiah would be God. In fact, an excellent book to read is The Search for Messiah by Dr. Mark Eastman. It's actually for free on uh, blueletterbible.com. You can read it there, the entire book. But he documents how the earliest written records of the rabbis, dating from 200 to 450 BC, they show us that they interpreted the Old Testament scriptures that way, that the Messiah would be God. But something changed 100, 150 years before Jesus came. The rabbis started to reject this idea. And by the time Jesus came, the new ideas were the norm. The Messiah would just be a man. He'd be just a man. But John clearly, by quoting this, believed otherwise. He was the voice sent to prepare a wasteland people to joyously say to all their neighbors, "Behold, your God." Now this answer, the, who, what, then, who are you? This answer does not satisfy these delegates because they didn't believe the voice was part of the Messiah prep team. Who's the voice? The voice isn't important. They were steeped in the current rabbinical traditions, and John tells us here that, that was because they were part of the group that claimed to be spiritual, but had no clue what the Bible actually said. Look at verse 24. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. So they asked him and said unto him, Why do you baptize then if you are not that Christ nor Elijah, neither that prophet? You're not part of the group. Now this is our first introduction to one of the factions in Israel this time, the Pharisees. The word Pharisees means separated ones, or holy ones, righteous ones. Israel, in Jesus' time, was like most cultures, a divided nation, with many factions vying for power. The Sadducees were the elite class. They were wealthy, they were connected to Roman authorities, and they had a stranglehold on the priesthood. They did not believe the Scriptures, only loosely holding to the first five books that Moses wrote. They rejected the resurrection from the dead, and they had a very murky view of the Messiah. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were considered the faithful group, the conservatives. They held to the truth, the fundamentals, and the common people revered them for it. They believed that all the Old Testament was inspired, and they held very strict views regarding keeping God's commands. Now, one of the mistakes that I know I made as a young believer, and that is often made, is thinking, well, that must have meant the Pharisees were students of the Scripture, students of God's law. They were not. They were not rabbis. They were not students. Instead, the reason they were revered so much is because they were like everything that you wanted, like you wanted your kid to grow up to be, like if you believed the rabbis, they did everything the rabbis said, everything. They were the visual representation, embodiment of rabbinical teaching, which is why they were called the righteous ones, the holy ones, The true Israelites. Now, the sad truth about both the Sadducees and the Pharisees is neither of them knew their Bible. The Sadducees didn't care, and the Pharisees were far more interested in what the rabbis said than what the scriptures said. And that is why John's answer does not satisfy them. They've never heard the rabbis talk about Isaiah 40 in regards to the Messiah or a voice who would come to prepare Israel for their Messiah. And so they challenged John's ministry of baptizing people, calling them to repentance. They said, why do you do this if you're not one of the big three? You have no legal basis to do this. It doesn't fit with sound rabbinical teaching. Luke chapter 7 verse 30 tells us that the Pharisees rejected God's word about John, that he would be that messenger. Instead, they chose to stand with rabbinical tradition. They were never on John's side, for the most part. That's sad, because everybody looked up to them. I'm equally saddened today by how many pastors, churchgoers, and political leaders claim to believe the entire Bible is God's Word, but they refuse to do what it says, refuse to live in accordance with it. They stand on creeds, faith statements, and church pronunciations, Boldly proclaiming their loyalty to Jesus, but they fail to do what Jesus and his prophets said. So what good does it do me to say I'm a Bible-believing Christian when I'm more versed with radio show or YouTube talking points than the book of Isaiah? Don't raise your hand, but how many of us here have actually read all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah? That's not a book we tend to gravitate towards. Like, what are you studying right now? I'm going through all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah. That's not something I ever hear. I bring this up because there is a danger in assuming that we're not like the Pharisees because we don't wear the things around our arms and pray out loud in front of people or announce when we're coming to give our offering because we don't shun lepers that were not Pharisees. But that's not the real test. You see, they did those things because they also hadn't read the 66 chapters of Isaiah. They didn't know what Isaiah said. And so our evil things don't have to be like theirs for us to be Pharisees, which is why we must take the real test, which is this. Do I know what God actually said in His Word? Am I reading it and seeking to live it out? Or is my loyalty to something else? Is my loyalty to a brand of society that happens to claim Christianity as its religion? Because that's what had happened with the Pharisees and the people of Israel. Now, John's response to their challenge is wonderful because he responds by doing his job, he's going to be the voice. He's going to point the way for these Pharisees to prepare themselves for their Messiah. Look at verse 26. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you know not, and he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. I like John's answer because it's a short one. Why Why are you baptizing people? He goes, yeah, I dunk people in water. I do do that. But that's not the most important thing we should be talking about. This was not the first rodeo conversation that they'd had together. This was not the first time they'd gotten together. The Pharisees had come to see what John was doing months earlier, maybe years earlier, when John first started his ministry. In Matthew chapter 3, it it gives us a, a different interaction they had, where this time John was the one doing all the speaking. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, we see recorded here an earlier interaction between the religious leaders and John. In verse 7 of Matthew 3, it says, But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come for his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That'd be like me coming to a visitor at church and going, why are you here? Like, you're one of those wicked people I know. Like, you're really religious, but you don't know the Lord at all. Like, are you, and you're here to get baptized? When did your heart change? It's a new ministry we're going to start next Sunday. Call them our brooders. John refuses to baptize them. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Why are you here? You haven't repented. This is You're here for popularity reasons? What like you're here? What are you here for? If you want to get baptized, then you need to repent. And at this point, I need to see some fruit. That you've actually changed your mind about what you think about yourself and how you relate to God. In other words, when he says who are you? Why are you doing this? He's like, we've already had this conversation. We had it before when you first came to me and I explained to you what I'm doing. I already talked to you about your problem. Verse nine, don't think to say within yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. That's what they were doing. We're already Abraham's seed. We're already God's people. We don't need this. Well, then why are you here? for I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. That was an insult. If all God's people failed to walk with him, he'd find someone somewhere who'd walk with him. These very rocks would do what he said at least. And yet, he does give them hope. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. When you're lining it up for a hit, he said, the Lord's lining up, Guys. You're running out of time. Therefore, every tree which does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Repent. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear. I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He wants to do this for you. There's still hope. There's still time, but you got to repent because his fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor. Every valley will be exalted. Every mountain and hilltop will be brought down. Every crooked spot's going to be made straight. So you are running out of time because he's going to gather his wheat into the garner, but the chaff, he's going to burn it up with unquenchable fire. So repent. So John says, yes, I baptize with water. You know the deal. I already gave you the sermon. He'd already told them this was not about him. It was about getting ready to receive their Messiah. And now John tells them, You're late. You're late. He's already here. But there stands one among you whom you know not. He it is. He's the one I told you about. He's already here. You see, in contrast, you're repenting and getting baptized. Messiah had come, and they weren't ready. He was standing in their own midst. Now, this lets us know that Jesus had already been baptized at this point. He'd already started his public ministry. We know this if we just keep reading, of course, because two days after this conversation with the religious leaders takes place, a couple of John's disciples start following Jesus. We know that Jesus, after he got baptized, what did he immediately do? He went into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days, right? And then he came back in the power of the Spirit. So we know that Jesus has already been baptized at this point if he's taking followers. So John could even be telling them right now, he's in the crowd and you don't even know who he is. Or, of course, John could just be saying, Jesus is already in the midst of his people. The king's already arrived and you've not prepared the road. Either way, the point is the same. Messiah has arrived and you don't even know it. Whom ye know not, literally, it's people like you don't know it. One of the things that stood out to me as Christmas songs are filling the air during this time of year is that line from Joy to the World, let every heart prepare Him room. It hit me like, you ever get something like you'll be worshiping the Lord or singing and all of a sudden something just grabs you? I don't remember if it was last Sunday morning or Sunday night, whatever, we did that song or some form of joy to the world, and we're singing that line, and it just kind of like slaps you. It was one of those moments where it just grabbed hold of my heart, and the Lord was like, Will, you're singing the line, but have you prepared your heart to have room for me? I'm in Isaiah, funny enough, in my devotions right now, and I read this morning in Isaiah 27, 9, By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he makes all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten into pieces. The groves and the images shall no longer stand up. This is the time when the Messiah comes and he fixes things. All of those idols are going to be smashed. There'll be nothing left in Israel. And it's kind of one of those moments where the Lord was asking me, will of Is there a bunch of junk in your heart? A bunch of idols there? Is there appropriate room for me? Or is the road of your heart like a, a desert wasteland right now? It's a good challenge. A challenge to them. John says, you can challenge what I'm doing here, but the truth is, the challenge is to you. I know who the Messiah is, and I'm doing what he told me to do. But because you didn't prepare your heart like I warned you to, you don't know him. Even though he's working right in your midst, which is why you don't understand what I'm doing. In other words, there were two types of people in that crowd those who had prepared room in their heart for Jesus and those who had not. Which are you? Which are you? John wasn't trying to gain a following. He said, I'm just baptizing with water, I'm just dunking people underwater people who were preparing room in their heart for the most important monarch to ever visit. He it is, John says in verse 27, who coming after me is preferred before me. We already covered those words in verse 15 of John chapter 1, so I'm not going to dig into it again, but it just reiterates that John regularly preached about Jesus' eternal nature, the Messiah's eternal nature that he who is born after me, the Messiah, when he comes, he's existed before me, and he's more important than me. He's mightier than I, as he said in Matthew 3. That's been his consistent message from the start of his ministry till now. The Messiah is an eternal nature. The Messiah is God become a human being. And he says, as a result, I'm not even worthy to unsnap his buckle on his sandal Lenski says that back then, when an honored guest or the master of the house entered a home, it was the task of the humblest slave in the house to unfasten the straps of the sandal, remove the shoes, bathe the feet, and then clean the shoes. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that first step. Worthy means deserving, to merit equal value. Like someone says, hey, you deserve to be the one to do that for the master. Now, granted, I don't think most of us are lining up for the wash someone's dirty, stinky feet job. I don't know what some of the work you guys have. Some of you might have a dirty, stinky job. But most of us are probably not saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be the lowliest slave. That is not the American dream. John says, my life... Has not merited enough to even do that, to be qualified for that task. He reiterates I'm not out here because I think I'm someone special. I'm just trying to point the way to the one who is the most special, which is the point of John the Beloved calling John the Baptist to the witness stand. The Messiah is God, become a man. You need to trust him, that we all might believe on Jesus. You see, we're not better than John. I mean, when you think of John's life, you think, okay, what kind of a life, you know, do I want to live as a a believer? What kind of life do I want to live as a human being? John, he's he's a descendant of priests. He's a descendant of the high priest, Aaron. He's part of Aaron's family line. He's got the bloodline of bloodlines in his veins. His future is is one of great opportunity, of great respect in his community, just by being born. And yet he leaves that whole society, goes out to the desert. And what do you do for a living? I dunk people underwater. That's all he did. We could look at John and say, that's a good man. He sacrificed his life to serve the Lord. He gave up everything. He's going to eventually give up his life for the Lord, be beheaded by Herod for calling out Herod's sin. Even if we've lived good lives like John the Baptist had, we too haven't earned anything from God. Even the lowest slave position is one we don't qualify for, which leaves us with some good questions to ask ourselves at the end of this chapter. Do you think you deserve something from God? Do I think I've earned something from God? Do I think that I deserve better than God has given me in my life? All of these questions point to a bigger question, which is, how do you and I relate to God? Is our relationship one that's contractual in the sense of, well, God, I'll do this for you and you do this for me? And then if He doesn't, we get frustrated with Him. Or do I relate to God with a sense of contentment because I know and I have the opportunity to serve Him? What did Jesus say to the disciples after they went out and they cast the demons out? And He said they were super happy. I mean, it was, it was a cool experience. And he said, don't rejoice because the demons left. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because you know you're God. Nothing can change that, even if the demons don't come out next time. Are you and I content with knowing and serving him? Have we prepared room in our heart? See, the answer to all those questions I gave you, they will tell you, and me, why we do what we do. Always. Why do you do what you do? I had a situation this week where I did something, and later on, the Lord confronted me about it, and I I realized there was a sense, that I thought I deserved something. And I had to recommit, Lord, I don't deserve anything. Like, I don't deserve this thing from you. And my reaction clearly showed that I thought I did. and I'm sorry. I'm going to go fix that. how do you relate to God? The answer to that is going to show you why you do what you do, why you approach life the way you do. Well, lastly, verse 28, John concludes by saying, these things, this conversation took place In Bethbara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. Bethbara here refers to Bethany. Now, not the famous village named Bethany that was near Jerusalem where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. John points out that this was beyond Jordan. This was a different city named Bethany or village named Bethany on the far side of the Jordan River. In other words, it was far away from all the traditions of the rabbis, far away from all the doctrines of man. This was a place where people could make a fresh start with God. Based on grace and based on truth. And so, as the team comes up, we close out the service this morning. I ask you, have you prepared room in your heart for the king? Because he's coming. He came. You're not there for that coming, but he's coming back. Have we prepared room in our heart for the king? Have we straightened those areas out where he's our God, he's our king, and we're going to receive his words with joy? And we're going to tell others, behold, your God. I know him, and I want to share him with you. Because the Lord wants us to do that with great joy. If you don't know the Lord today, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to give you an opportunity to change that, to repent and put your faith in Christ, to receive him, to make room for him. Let's all stand. If you are a believer today, I think the challenge is that like Israel, if we allow it, we can allow other things to get into our heart. Those chalky idols, the groves, the the pillars that he referred to, the idols that Israel frequently worshipped. And he reminds them that they're just like chalk. You just need to smash them. It's the only answer for an idol. The answer for an idol is not to file it away in a closet. It's It never, never is to just kind of take it down a few notches. The only answer for an idol is to do what Gideon did to it. You smash it. So if you're here today and you think, well, I've, I did make room in my heart for Jesus, but I think maybe some other things are making the path crooked right now. I've thrown some rocks in there, some dumb rocks. And that's the case, you know, as, as I pray, just give that thing to him, Let, smash it. And give him that room again. So Lord, we come to you now and you know every heart, you know where we're at, you know what's going on and we want to be those who prepare room for you. We want to make those paths straight because Lord, we know when you you call us and sound the trumpet, we're going to go stand with you and we don't want all those things that we gave our lives to to just burn up to be worthless time spent. We want to live lives that have been content with knowing you and serving you and investing into eternal things, Lord, people. And as a result, Lord, joyously receiving the rewards you give. And there every eye closed, every head bowed. If you're here today and you're repenting of your sins and receiving Christ, would you just lift your hand up if you're making that decision right now? Because I'd like to pray with you as you make that decision. It's also important to testify and say, I've made that decision. So if you're making that decision right now to repent and receive Christ, just lift your hand high, because I'd like to pray with you as you make that choice. Anybody this morning, you say, I'm repenting and receiving Christ, Pastor Will, before we close. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your great love. We thank you that you bring us away each Sunday to this place where we can kind of get away from the doctrines of man and spend some time sitting at your feet learning of you. And pray you would help us to live out the things that you have spoken to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.